thought we'd open up thinking about these questions. If you had to define it for yourself, what, what makes life full and meaningful? You don't need to answer, but what makes life full and meaningful to you? I mean, if you really had to think about it, and I don't mean the Sunday school answer, and I don't mean the church answer, but if you really had to look at your life and say, man, this is what makes life worth living. I don't think I could go on without it. Would it be your kids? Man, life is meaningful because I have kids. I don't know that I can go on because I can't have kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Man, my spouse is what makes life worth living. Everything revolves around them. Or, I just can't go on, God, if you don't give me a spouse. What makes life worth living? Is it a friendship? Is it a job? Is it having a certain amount of money or a certain amount of status? What makes life full in your definition? And then if we all had to be really, really honest, how essential would Jesus be to that definition? Yeah, Jesus, I love you as long as you can get me a spouse, as long as you can get me a job. But how essential is Jesus to what makes life worth living? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 as we, we look at um, Paul's answer to that question. And I want to catch you up to the logic of the book of Colossians because it comes to a point in this passage and in next week's passage. And so the false teachers uh, have claimed, look, we have something deeper to offer you, some deeper experience uh, the word that they have used throughout the book of Colossians is fullness. We have something that will fill you up. We have some fullness to offer you that so far your, your salvation has not provided you yet. And they have mixed in, here's some Jewish law, let's, let's do that. And then there's some, also some pagan and mystical laws that are built in there with Sabbaths and new moons and festivals. And then there's this rigorous, rigorous, it's called asceticism, this rigorous self-discipline and self-denial. And if we put all this together in a system, it's going to fill you up. At least that's the claim. And so Paul has been answering those claims throughout the book of Colossians. And in chapter 1, he answers it with this amazing hymn fragment uh, in 15 and following. And it talks about Jesus is supreme over the creation. He is the firstborn of it. He is the image of God. It is made by him. It is made through him. It is made for him. He is supreme over the creation and all the created world as big as you can think about it. But he is also supreme over the church. He's supreme over redemption. He's supreme over salvation. He has initiated. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has initiated this whole new resurrected order of life. And then he goes into chapter 2 and he says, I'm telling you all of this. I'm bringing this to a point because I want you to know God's mystery named Jesus, named Christ. I want you to know deeply the strongest word for knowledge we have in the Bible. I want you to know deeply by experience Jesus. And I tell you all of this, he says, I say all of this so that no one will delude you. That is, nobody will cheat you and trick you by their logical arguments and plausible arguments. They won't trick you and then take you captive by those empty, deceptive philosophies. So that's the flow of the book so far. Today he is going to answer why you shouldn't be taken captive by those empty, deceptive philosophies with a positive, 
I know this is a dreaded word in church, theological argument for why you should not be taken captive. Next week he is going to address specifically the false teachings that are being spread there. And so let's look at it in Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. And so for meaning the reason. He's answering the don't be taken captive by these man-made, demonic, contrary to Christ philosophies. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the body of flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we have sung about the victory of Jesus all day. We have sung about how he conquered us and we're not the same. We have sung about he is the God over the angel armies. And we have no need to fear. He has crushed the enemy underneath our feet in his cross. He has won. And he has purchased our salvation and forever sealed the defeat of your enemies forever sealed the defeat of the demonic realm, they have been disarmed. And so God, grant us to live by your grace in the victory that's purchased for us in Christ. Grant us to live in the fullness that comes from this salvation that is so rich and so full and so complete. God, that nothing would tempt us to stray. God, that nothing, no one, no person, no relationship, no stuff would ever tempt our heart to leave the richness of Jesus in our lives. God, bind our wandering hearts to you. We pray it in his name. Amen. So Christ's fullness offers us a full and complete salvation. Christ's fullness offers us a full and complete salvation. And those words didn't really feel big enough to me, but I couldn't find bigger, better words The salvation that Christ gave us, it's full, it's complete, it's total, it's all-encompassing. There is not one part of our life it doesn't touch. There's not one part of the world it does not touch. There's not one little molecule left for you to do or earn or figure out or complete. There's not one drop missing. It's filled to the very top. There couldn't contain another drop in the vessel of salvation. There's nothing else to add. It's full, it's complete, it's total. And so... Paul is setting up over and against, there's this empty philosophy. There is this empty Milano bag of cookies sitting on a shelf waiting for you. It's empty. It's deceptive. It's hollow. And then there's Christ, whom the fullness of God, the whole, complete, total fullness of deity dwells inside his body. 
This is one of the texts we go to when we're talking with someone about, did Jesus really claim to be God? Did the Bible really claim that Jesus was God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This would be a passage we'd go to. Because it very clearly and specifically says, in Jesus, the whole, complete totality of God dwells inside of him bodily. It's not some spirit thing. It's not some separate thing. It's in the person we know of as Jesus. The, the, man, the God-man who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. God, that's God. He's the fullness of God. And from his fullness we're filled. Uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you say it, said this, our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Always looking for something to fill. Always looking for something to complete. Always looking for something. And, and sometimes in our salvation we get to a place where we have distance from Christ or we just, there's something more out there for us. And our hearts grow restless again. Something will fill us up. Something will complete the salvation thing. Some speaker or some music or some song or some relationship will really, that'll seal the deal and finish it. But if God came in human flesh, if the fullness of God is in Jesus, if all the infinite glory and beauty of God dwells in this person, Jesus, and from his overflow pours into us and fills us, it's kind of a done deal. When infinite God decides to fill up finite human beings with his salvation that's total and complete, that's kind of all there is. You can't get any more than that. And why would you want to? His salvation is full. It's finished. It's total. It's complete. From the completeness, from the fullness of God in Christ, from that never-ending river of life, our little bitty buckets are filled. Done. Complete. So let's look at the text. The first thing we see in 9 through 12, Jesus unites us to his death and resurrection as pictured in baptism. Jesus unites us into his death and into his resurrection as pictured in in baptism. So we don't talk about baptism a ton. Um, When we do it, we do, but um, it's not something we focus on all the time. But since it's in the text, I want us to kind of break out and talk about this thing called baptism together. And so it may be that you grew up in a faith tradition like the Baptist tradition and many non-denominational traditions where baptism was a common thing and you get it, you grew up with it, you're familiar. Or it may be that you grew up in a faith tradition that's different than that and this is kind of new to you. You may have come from like a Presbyterian background or you may have come from a Methodist background and, you know, they baptize their, their children and so it's a little different. And so what I want to invite all of us, whether we're from Baptist type traditions or non, to consider this thing called baptism in a fresh way. And so I'm going to give you first a survey of baptism uh, in, in the New Testament. I'll just use three passages or so. There's some more on the back of your handout that can help you look up some other references. Uh, and then we're going to go into what does it mean, this thing called baptism, and then how should we do it. So a quick survey. So Jesus, before he entered into public ministry, and before he had been tempted, led out into the wilderness and tempted... Jesus comes to John the Baptist, the one that baptizes people, John the Baptizer, and he says, I'm going to be baptized. And John says, no way. I'm not worthy to untie a strap of your sandal. I'm not going to baptize you. And he's like, no, you have to baptize me. It is to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized. He goes under the water. He comes up out of the water. And God the Father speaks from heaven 
And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes and rests on Jesus. So you have God the Father in heaven. You have uh, God the Spirit in a dove. And you have God the Son all pictured at the same time. They are not the same thing. They are three separate persons, one God. Go ahead and throw that in for you. But he says it to fulfill all righteousness. And the question is, what do you mean? Because the Old Testament doesn't prescribe baptism. There's no like righteous law demand you have to be baptized in the Old Testament. So here's what I would say that means. Jesus says, I did it to fulfill all righteousness. He is not going back to an old righteousness law that he has to fulfill. He's pointing forward to a new righteousness that he is installing. That is, circumcision is kind of being done away with, and baptism will be the new rite of the covenant. It will be the new uh, ordinance of the covenant that enters in people into this new uh, covenant of grace. And so I would say it's not to fulfill old righteousness in the law, but instead to initiate a new righteousness that his followers would then take part of in the future. That's my stab at it. Second, Peter preaches the first sermon of the New Testament era after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And he preaches his heart out. And at the end of the, ser- the sermon, the the, the Thousands of people were listening, and they were cut to the heart, the Bible said. And they said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. See, there's this intimate connection between repentance and spirit salvation, spirit baptism, what we know of as salvation, and physical baptism. They get linked very tightly in the Bible. They're not separated out like some major separate event. Okay. So that's Peter's first sermon. Then Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit gives him the ability to run after a chariot and catch it. And this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip's like, hey, do you need help understanding? Sure, I do. Is this guy talking about himself, the prophet, or is he talking about someone else? And beginning with Isaiah, Philip preaches Jesus to him. And then they come along a body of water on a deserted road. And he says, what stops me from being baptized? And Philip baptizes him. And so we see this connection. Jesus initiates this new thing called, not exactly new, but this new ordinance called baptism for his people. The first sermon that is preached, there is salvation and baptism. And then Philip, as he's preaching to this one Ethiopian eunuch, there is salvation and there is baptism. And so there's this intimate link between the physical thing of baptism and the internal spiritual baptism, which we call salvation. And so, in the Bible, a lot of times the passages on the back of your book or on the back of your handout are speaking of a spirit baptism. And by that, I don't mean a second baptism. I don't mean the gift of tongues. I mean, when you are saved, baptism is is what refers to that. And so when we're looking at Romans 6 and when we're looking at the passage today, this is not water baptism. This is what has happened in your spirit. You died and were buried and you rose again. That's called salvation. Your death, his death became yours and his new life became your new life. Saved, baptized. All right, so what does it mean? What is the meaning of baptism? I would say there's two answers to that. There is both a personal answer and then there is a corporate answer, a church answer, a public body answer. And so what does baptism mean personally to you? And that's kind of what we've already been sharing about, is it's this spiritual baptism that is pictured through a physical baptism. And so in Romans 6, 
Do you not know that you were baptized, as many of you were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? And just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, you too were raised to walk in the newness of life. No water involved there. You, when you were saved, died to who you were. You were plunged into the death of Jesus that was on your behalf. And then when you were saved, you were also, just as Jesus was raised, you were plunged into his new life, this new resurrected life. That's what it means. That's what it pictures. You have been spiritually baptized. And then the physical sign of baptism pictures that out is all. And so it is, the idea is that you're plunged into his death, united with him, identifying with his death, and you are united into his new life. This whole new category of existence called resurrection. You're united with his new life, with his resurrected life. You have identified with it. And so baptism pictures that. It is a public confession of that internal reality. It is an identification with that reality. But I don't want it to sound like it's just that. Like this is truly a mystical, uniting, grace imparting ordinance it's not simply okay i'm saved let me go dunk in some water and obey yes sir there is actually some grace that is imparted as we share in the lord's supper and there's some grace that's imparted as we share in baptism and so that's the meaning of it personally what about the meaning of it corporately Uh, one writer uh, put it this way that baptism physical now is the front door to the family of God. And so what baptism is, is I get the, family, the keys to the family home, and I get to unlock the door, and I get to walk into this new family, the family of God called the church. And you know what? I get to go in that house anytime I want. It's my house now. And I get to rummage through the pantry that I would never think about doing if I were a guest, and I get to pull food out and eat the chips in the house. And, you know, I get to go rummage through the, the refrigerator and see if there's something to snack on. And I get to go open the drawers. They're my drawers. It's my family. It's my home. I get, I get all the privileges of the, being part of the family of God called the church. And I get to sit around the family dinner table with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language as a family. And it is no longer foul or blood coursing through my veins, making the family of the table. It is Jesus' blood coursing through our veins that makes us family at this table. And baptism is simply the front door that walks me into a new family called the church. And it is a family that does not have a racial identity. It's a family that doesn't have an economic identity. It's a family that doesn't have a physical bloodline identity. It's a family that has the blood of Jesus as its common identity. Jesus makes a new family, and baptism simply pictures entering into that family corporately as a, as a group. And so that's my stab at meaning. And now the big question is, okay, so how should we be baptized? Should we be sprinkled? Should we be poured? Should we do it as a child? Should we do it as an adult? Um, and there's many people who disagree on the answer to that question. So that's okay. There's people who view the scriptures differently, not in essential ways, but in a non-essential way. And that's fine. I'm going to give you my answer to that question. And so who, who should be baptized? How should you be baptized? So we believe in baptism by immersion. That is, we fill this water up back here, and you go all the way underwater, and you come all the way back out of the water. And that's baptism by immersion. Why do we believe that, though? I'm going to give you three of the answers real quickly that we've kind of already covered. It pictures... That's spiritual baptism. 
If we died with Christ, were buried with Christ, and rose with Christ, what most naturally, what form of baptism most naturally pictures that happening? Being buried into water, dying, and coming out new. The picture of baptism. The second reason I would give is the most natural meaning of the word baptism in the New Testament in Greek is to be submerged in water. So baptism, the word totally apart from theological meanings, most naturally means to immerse in water. And then thirdly, it's the example of Jesus. Okay, Jesus went into the water. As he was coming up out of the water, the text says, God spoke, the Holy Spirit came. So it pictures Jesus in his model, and it pictures salvation, death, and resurrection, and it also is the most natural meaning of the word. So that's my stab at it, which would mean the answer to the last question of who should be baptized? Believers should be baptized. It would be how we would answer that question. And so in the Old Testament, you were ethnically identified with the people of God through circumcision. Meaning, if you were just simply born a Jew, you would take the sign of the Jews, which is circumcision, and you would be part of the covenant family. But in the New Testament, it is no longer an ethnic family. You're not born into the kingdom. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again into the kingdom. And so the right to walk into the kingdom family is now a right that participates by believers, not simply because you're ethnically born into a church or not. And so that would be my answer to who should be baptized. Believers should be baptized, and they should be baptized after their salvation, and they should be baptized by immersion. So that's how we'd answer that question. All that leads us to the text. We've kind of set the imagery up already. His answer to the question of don't be taken captive, don't be deluded by false arguments. His answer to that question begins with the answer of baptism and circumcision. And so he's giving the physical, tangible picture that they can see as his answer. And so let's look at kind of the logic of the text, and then we will get into uh, the details quickly. And so we've kind of set up the imagery. So we've got empty philosophy versus fullness in Christ. Christ, who is the fullness of God, filling us. These are your two options. You can go one way or the other, and I'm, in a sense, okay with it. Whichever one you choose, I would just encourage you to go all in on one or the other. Like, go all into your philosophy or go all into Christ, but don't play in the middle. Let Christ capture your heart and own you, or let your philosophies own you, but go all in on one. Life shouldn't be lived halfway, but that's me. I don't live halfway generally. I usually am picking a side, so that's what I would encourage you to do. As we get into that, and so there's these two sides that are offered up to people, these two ways to go, as he kind of lays that out. And then he answers it positively by saying, you have been circumcised and baptized into the death of Christ and into the resurrection of Christ. And so part of this fullness, this fullness of salvation, we would say, is that you have died with Christ and you've risen with Christ. You have been circumcised. You don't need to go get physically circumcised. Jesus took care of that. Answer one. Answer two, this fullness of salvation took you when you were dead. Dead in your trespasses. Dead in your uncircumcision. You were dead. And it made you alive. Why in the world would you go to anything else? Why would somebody that went from death to life because of the cross of Jesus possibly think about anything else? 
And then he closes, Jesus is sovereign over salvation, and he makes us alive, but he also, at the cross, when he was saving us, he was doing something else, and that's how the text ends. At the cross, he was destroying and disarming and triumphing over the demonic realm. And so that's the flow of the text. You have been filled with a complete salvation. Here's a picture of that death and resurrection. Here's the truth of that. You were dead, you're now alive. And by the way, Jesus triumphed over the demons. Everything is under his feet. Everything is under him. He is supreme over everything. And so let's look at it as we start with baptism. We've kind of covered the text. I'm going to go pretty quickly on this part. So circumcision, what is it? Circumcision was the first act of obedience in Old Testament law. And so when you were circumcised, you walked into the obligations of the Old Covenant, of the law covenant of the Old Testament. Okay, and so when you were circumcised, your parents circumcised you at the eighth day, or if you were a proselyte who converted to Judaism and you were circumcised, this was the first requirement, the first act of obedience that walked you into the obligations of the covenant. And so that's what took place. And so you could not obey the law apart from circumcision in their mindset. You couldn't do it. And so the false teachers have some sort of legalism, some sort of Jewish legalism in their teaching. And so they're saying, come on, hadn't you been circumcised yet? There is fullness if you get circumcised. Now, as a guy, I'm thinking this is a tough sell. I'm just saying, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, and man, you are a great teacher, but you want me to do what? No. But somehow they had convinced people. You should be circumcised, and if you're circumcised, there's this whole spiritual fullness, this whole salvation fullness that you're missing out on. And Paul answers it by saying, yeah, you've already got that. You have been circumcised. You have been circumcised in a circumcision made without hands. And the word made without hands means divine origin. Uh, when when uh, Paul speaks of the temple or when Hebrews speaks of the temple, it's a temple. The heavenly temple is made without hands, meaning it is made, it is divine in its origin. Well, here we have a circumcision that is made without hands. Some, some sinful priest did not come and circumcise me and make me an entrance into the covenant of the law. God himself, Christ himself, circumcised me without hands. By the putting off of the body of flesh, that is, by putting off the physical body of fallenness, the flesh being fallenness and sin nature, and the body being the physical body. And so the circumcision does something. It kills the fallenness that works through our physical bodies and has its power through our physical bodies. And circumcision, you have had that old body removed. It is dead. This old flesh and the body it controls is dead. By the circumcision of Christ. It's kind of like, okay, let's compare credentials. I know you and you're sinful and I've got Jesus. Who do I want to circumcise me? Who do I want to kill me and make me alive again? Picture in picture form. Going with Christ on that one. So again, he's answering their, their arguments. And then look at it. He ties circumcision into baptism. You were circumcised by Christ. How? By this baptism. You were, de- you, uh, you were baptized into his death, it talks about. And so in him you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. And so you see the picture of baptism. You were buried with him in baptism. You were buried into his death. He died on your behalf. You deserved to die. All of us deserve the death penalty. 
Every single one of us have committed high crimes of high treason against the sovereign Lord of the universe who created everything and we deserve the death penalty. penalty. And we got it because Jesus took it for us. And he died and we enter into his death in this thing called baptism. And he rose again because he was innocent and vindicated by God and we enter into this resurrection with him. And so just as we were buried with him in baptism, that same baptism raised us up from the dead through faith. And so we have this idea of entering the the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus pictured in this thing called baptism. The second step of Christ's full salvation, his complete salvation, Jesus satisfied the law's demands and paid our sin debt on the cross. Jesus satisfied the law's demands And he paid our sin debt on the cross. So, my brother and I have very different views of finances. And um, he likes to spend more and kind of have the right logo on his clothes. And I've never really cared much for that. And so, my brother's 18. And, you know, when you're 18, they send you these things called credit cards. Bad idea. If you hadn't gotten into that mess yet, students, please don't. Bad idea. All right, so he gets a credit card. Problem number one. Problem number two, he's got a girlfriend. Problem number three, he has no job. Credit card, girlfriend, no job equals over, you know, a couple year period, about $10,000 in credit card debt that he can't pay. No way whatsoever. You gotta have a job to make money to pay, right? And so none of that's happening. But my mom, and we're not talking about the wisdom of this, I'm just talking about the illustration of this. My mom steps in and pays the debt for him. The debt he could not possibly pay ever, not making money, she paid on his behalf. The Bible speaks about your sin in terms of debt in places. Uh, in, the, in the model prayer, or the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts against us. Sin is pictured as a debt that we owe, a debt against God, a debt against God's law that we have to pay, and we can't pay it back. We can't pay it back in a million years. All we can do is rack up more debt. We don't have a job. All we can do is rack up more debt. We've got things we want to spend it on. Our sin account grows and it grows and it grows and it is crushing. And the consequences are far more than bankruptcy. They're eternal bankruptcy and eternal separation from God. And we can't do anything about it. Do you feel that? Except for Jesus at the cross paid the debt he did not owe. But we did on our behalf. And he paid the sin debt we owed because of our sin. And he gave us life. And here's the picture we're looking at is him paying our debt on our behalf. And so he says it here. And you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. In case you didn't get it the first or second time, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. That was your condition apart from Christ. Dead men don't earn paychecks to pay back God for their debt. Dead men don't have a way to bring life. All they have is death. 
And this is the, it, it mirrors very closely Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world under the prince of the power of the air, fulfilling the desires of the lust of your flesh and children of wrath, under the wrath of God. That's our condition apart from Christ. That's our condition apart from Christ. Do you feel that? Do you remember what it was like to be under the curse of sin and the sentence of sin and the condemnation of sin and the death of sin and the eternal separation from God of sin? Do you remember the weight of that? Because you were dead in your trespasses. I was dead in my trespasses. And he ties it back into circumcision and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Your flesh was still there. It had not been killed yet and raised again. But God made you alive. God made you alive. You were dead, now you live. You were dead, headed towards eternal death, and now you're alive, headed towards eternal life with never-ending, ever-increasing joys that accompany it in the presence of God. That's where you're headed now. You're dead in your sins and trespasses, or your uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with Christ. How? He forgave us our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. That is the handwritten IOU. And so the picture is there is this, this, this ledger that is being kept, this handwritten bill that is being tallied. And our sins are kept in there one after the other. He lied. He lusted. He gossiped. He um, whatever else. He thought evil about someone. He uh, got angry. He lost his temper. He was irritable. And he fills up a ledger. There's not enough pages to fill up my ledger. A handwritten IOU. Paid in full. What is the IOU? What is the debt? It's the debt against the legal requirements is what the text says. It's a debt against the, the, the legal demands. And so the, the law of Moses, which is what I think we're talking about here, the law of Moses sets up a standard and it sets up the demands that are placed on your life, whether you like it or not. He's God. He made you. He gets to write it. And so here, is your, here are your requirements to live up to. Debt, 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 debt. Debt I did not worship God and God alone. I worshipped something else. I had another God before him. I made myself a graven image. Maybe it looked like money or maybe it looked like a statue, but I made myself graven images. I have not honored the authorities God has placed in my life. I have not valued and protected life. Instead, I've killed it with my anger. I've killed it with my um, rage and fits. I've not honored my parents or my authority structures. I have lusted. I have whatever the list is. Debt, 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 debt. And Jesus stamps this huge ledger of your life paid. How? Nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. 
when a criminal was crucified, it was the death penalty of the day, when the criminal was crucified, they would take a plaque and they would write the offense of the criminal and place it over his head on the cross. Here's the crime. Here's the sentence. And when this sentence is carried out, it is paid in full. There's nothing else to add. And so murderer or traitor or whatever reason put above his head and when he is dead the debt is paid you know they put a plaque over jesus's head right this is jesus king of the jews that was his crime that was what they accused him of that's what they crucified him for and he died and when he died the text is saying when he died your ledger of sin was nailed up on top of his head And his death that you deserved paid the debt of the crime. Finished. Nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. He satisfied the law's demand. And so when somebody comes and offers you legalism as a valid substitute for life in Christ, don't take the deal. Legalism, one commentator said, is as if God can be bought by our efforts. Don't think God can be bought by your efforts. They aren't that great. Mine aren't either. Mine aren't either. God can't be bought by our efforts. He can't be manipulated by our works. Legalism. I will be more accepted by God if I do blank. Do not let legalism substitute for your salvation in Christ. Don't go up to this thing where... Here's Jesus offering life and salvation and get almost there and then turn aside and start doing church stuff. I'm going to give, I'm going to come, I'm going to work, I'm going to go to Sunday school, I'm going to be on committees, I'm going to eventually work my way up into leadership. That's such a poor substitute for Jesus making you alive from the dead. So don't go up to the edge of salvation and say, oh, I'm going to be a really good person and clean myself up and do good stuff. That's legalism and you will never be accepted that way. All our works are as filthy rags before him. But here's another thing in this text that we get in danger of. We're either prone to legalism where after salvation or before salvation, you know what, God saved me by Jesus, how great, but I'm going to do my works to make sure he stays happy with me. He's happy with you in the blood of his son, Jesus. Done. But here's the other problem we have. There's legalism that carries us away from Christ, but there's also guilt. Right? And so maybe you're on the opposite end of legalism and you live out of guilt. The crushing weight of the sins of your past the crushing weight of your lifestyle, the crushing weight of your separation, and all the things that you did there. This says don't wallow in guilt. Guilt produces godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness, which leads to the joy of our salvation and the praise to our God. That's the process of guilt. But when we stop in guilt and we freeze in guilt and we obsess in guilt and we let ourselves wallow stuck in the mud of the sin and the guilt of our past, when we stop there, we cut ourselves off from the joy of our salvation. We're feeling guilty over what has already been paid. We are feeling guilty over what has already been nailed to the top of the cross of Jesus. And it doesn't honor him for us to feel guilty. It doesn't honor him for us to live in guilt. It honors him when we walk into the freedom of grace and rejoice in it. All right, the last step. So there's this picture of baptism. Entered his death, entered his life. And then there is Jesus paid the debt of our sin with his righteous life and his death. And then the last part. Jesus defeated 
and disgraced the demonic realm. Jesus defeated and disgraced the demonic realm in the cross. I think it's pretty obvious there's a natural fascination with the supernatural. There always has been. If you go to Peru where they next to don't have a TV, they still interpret the world through the work of spirit beings. And like, oh, they did some bad stuff and it caught up with them and the tractor fell over on them. See, that's because they did bad works. And that's, you know, there's a spirit involvement getting payment for what they got away with. Or for us, it's this odd fascination with our TV shows. There is a show called Lucifer now. The jet-setting devil has come to L.A. and is living it up. Or Supernatural, or Sleepy Hollow is not that popular one, but there's two witnesses who are fighting the demonic realm that has been opened up into our world. There's a fascination with spirit beings. There's a fascination with angels. There always has been. There's a fascination with the demonic. There always has been. And we choose to either make a joke of them, which is why you have the caricature of the devil. That is not him. He doesn't have little horns and a trident and a cape. That was made in the middle centuries as this mockery so that you wouldn't fear it. It's not him. And so we make a joke out of them or we fear them. And we impart way too much power to them. And we've got to be careful of both. They are not a joke. Satan is real personified, pure evil. And he is totally opposed to you as a person because he's totally opposed to God's work in this world. But we can't go to the other side and be afraid of them. They don't have the power to control your life. They don't have the power to control your circumstances. They don't have any power except for when they are on their knees groveling before the throne of sovereign God, he says, yes, you may do that. That is the only power they have in this universe. Sir, may I please... Yes, you may. They are defeated. They bow before God. They are under the feet of Jesus. He is the head, the sovereign over all rule and authority. That is over all the demonic realm. And so when we look at texts like this, we remember they are not a joke to play with. But we also remember they are also not forces for us to fear and live underneath as if they have some power in our lives that's different. Look at what Jesus did. Three words Um, And and there is in the Colossian church clearly a fascination with supernatural beings. So in chapter 1, rule and authority, the demonic or angelic or demonic realm. In chapter 2, verse 9, we just talked about he is the head of all or 10. He is the head of all rule of authority. We think probably the elemental spirits in the verse just before this is talking about the demonic realm. And then here, the demonic realm. And so there's clearly some fascination with angels, whether it's worshiping angels or angels being the mediums that carry their worship to God or fear of the demonic realm. Something in the church has to do with with angels and with demons. And so look what Jesus did. Three words to capture his work against the demonic realm. First, he disarmed them. This is a word that can be both military, meaning an army comes in, they conquer another army, and they take every one of their weapons from them, and they no longer have the ability to defend themselves or to fight against the ones that have conquered them. They are disarmed. They're soldiers without guns. Or it can also be political, meaning disgrace. That is, they have, all their status and all their authority has been taken off of them because they are defeated. And so Jesus came and he stripped them of their rank and he stripped them of their authority and stripped them of their status. And Jesus came and he stripped them of their weapons. And Satan has legitimate weapons and his forces, the demons, have legitimate weapons that have been taken from them. 
They have the ability to enslave and sin. They have the ability to veil the hearts of unbelievers. But in the work of the cross, that has been removed from them. They do not have their weapons. They have been disgraced. They don't have their authority anymore. And so they are disarmed. They are disgraced. Secondly, they are put to open shame. In the ancient cultures, and probably today too, the clothes that you wear would portray your status in society. And so rulers would have certain outfits that they wore that said, I am a ruler. And kings would have very ornate outfits and clothes that said, I am a king. And so he came to the demonic realm and he took off their clothes. He publicly shamed them. He took off the symbols of their rank and left them exposed. And so think about this at the cross. Jesus is nearly naked on the cross, publicly ridiculed, publicly shamed, publicly mocked. And the demons are sitting there thinking, we have got this thing. We put him on the cross. We've won. He's dead. But what's really happening in that moment? What's really happening in that moment of Jesus' ultimate shame is their ultimate defeat. Their clothes are being taken off them in that moment. They are being exposed to public shame in that moment. And all that they have that makes them their authority and makes them their power is being taken from them. While it looks like the most humiliating, defeated moment of Jesus' life, it is their moment of defeat instead. And that's the last word. He triumphed over them in him. He triumphed over them in the cross. The demonic realm is defeated. The demonic realm has been stripped of all of its status and publicly exposed to shame. And the demonic realm has been taken all their authority and all their weaponry from them. This is what Jesus did in the cross. So he is both sovereign in this work of salvation, offering grace to the redeemed humanity, but he is also sovereign over the demonic realm. And so in the cross, when he is saving people, he is disgracing and defeating the demonic realm. Why on earth would you fear them? If you trust him, why would you fear them? Why on earth would you follow them? Why on earth would you worship them? They are underneath him. A few practical things as we close. First, I would challenge you to come to Christ or identify with him in baptism. If this message says nothing else, it says you are dead in your sins apart from him. And only he can make you alive through his cross, by his grace, through your faith, your personal faith in Jesus. Not your personal faith in church membership, not your personal faith in Jesus plus something else. Believing in Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. For for the weight of your life, not just the mental picture of your life. He'll save you. Come to him. Believe on him. Bow before him. And I would also encourage you to identify in baptism. I don't care about notches in my Bible. I don't care about reports we send to a convention. I don't care. But it is a step of identification and it is a step of obedience. And there is a grace that God gives in the middle of it. And so if it's not something you have done, I would simply encourage you, because that's where we are in the Bible, I would just simply encourage you to prayerfully consider it, read the scriptures on your back, cross-reference them to others, and you get before God and you determine... Is this the step it's time to take? Second, walk away from legalism. Man, it will kill you. It will kill you to live under the law. 
It will take and shrivel your soul to nothing and you'll be this bitter, judgmental person walking around angry and walking around finding fault with everybody else, but never with yourself. There's always a reason for yours, but there's a fault with someone else and it will destroy and shrivel your soul to nothing. Walk away from that. In his presence is the fullness of joy, rivers of pleasure forevermore. But you'll never get to his presence through the law. You will never make it to joy in the law. And so I would just encourage you, look for your life. Where is, this, where is this legalistic spirit? I think through guilt I can maybe work my way enough to earn God's favor or work my way enough to be accepted by God. No. Or do good enough. He'll be happier with me. No. Walk away from that. Second, or lastly, walk away from, walk away from guilt into grace. It is time to lay down the chains of sin that are under the blood of Jesus. What's yours? What's the one you keep going back to? What's the one you will not let yourself escape? What is the one that you continue and over and over again an enemy reminds you of or your family reminds you of or a friend reminds you of? What is that one you keep going back to that has a hold on your life? Do not let it hold on anymore. The blood of Jesus covered it along with every single other one in your life. It is nailed to the cross. It's canceled. You don't owe it to God anymore. Allow grace to set you free. Allow grace to set you free from a sexual past. Allow grace to set you free from divorce, from cheating, from... Uh, being a drunk, from being angry, from being harsh. What is your thing? Allow the grace of Christ to set you free so that you can walk in the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our debt is paid. Make us more thankful that our debt is paid. We thank you that sin does not have a hold on us and death does not have a claim on us and Satan is no longer the one who rules over us and the veil that he had to blind us from the glory of Christ has been torn away and we are saved. Now God, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters through this room that we would flee every legalism and rest in the finished work of Christ and that we would let go of our guilt and let go of our shame and let go of all that holds us back from joyfully running after you, unencumbered, uninhibited, after you and only you. Father, please strip it away from our lives. Set us free because you already have set us free through the work of Jesus. So, Father, work among your people today. Work in those that don't know you and offer them life that they may believe and be saved. We pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.